I'm Neil Ferguson. I'm the Milbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. And one of the things I do here is to chair the Hoover History Working Group. Uh, we've been very fortunate this afternoon to welcome, uh, to present to us, my old friend Mary Sorotti, who's the Marie-José and Henry R. Kravis Distinguished Professor of Historical Studies at the Henry A. Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, DC. She used to be Dean's Professor of History and International Relations at the University of Southern California. Before that, uh, she taught at Cambridge on the other side of the pond. Uh, she is a research associate at Harvard Center for European Studies. Uh, where she did uh, her undergraduate uh, before doing her PhD at, at Yale. Mary's authored uh, several uh, really imp impressive books on contemporary history. The Collapse, The Accidental Opening of the Berlin Wall was one I especially enjoyed. Uh, 1989, The Struggle to Create Post-Cold War Europe uh, is another. I think they were both nominated for the Financial Times Book of the Year. Uh, but the paper that she presented today uh, takes the story forward into the 1990s. Uh, not one inch, America, Russia, and the making of post-Cold War stalemate. Uh, this is a preview of her forthcoming book, Not One Inch, America, Russia and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate, which is just out or would be out if it weren't for paper shortages. Uh, and if you're impatient like me, you can, you can read a summary in uh, a recent article she published in Foreign Affairs. Welcome, Mary. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I want to kick this off uh, with a kind of dumb question. I guess I was one of those people exultant in 1989 who thought that NATO enlargement was just a great stroke of strategic genius. And I'm quite uh, taken aback to find that you think it was a mistake, or at least uh, that it was uh, a case of overreach. Tell us why you think uh, enlargement went wrong and whether it could have been done differently. Sure. So the person who really disagrees with you is George Kennan, who called NATO expansion the biggest strategic blunder of the post-Cold War era, full stop. I have a slightly more nuanced argument. I argue that NATO expansion was a reasonable response to the geopolitics of the time. Central and Eastern Europe had, of course, just bravely thrown off the yoke of Soviet authoritarianism and they wanted to choose their own security alliance. They had the right to do, to do that. NATO had of course expanded in the past. So NATO expansion was neither unreasonable nor unprecedented. The problem with NATO expansion was how it happened. It happened in a way that maximized friction with Moscow during the precious thaw at the end of the Cold War. And in the book, I tell this story in great detail. Now, I, I don't believe in monocausality. I do not argue in the book that American and Russian relations declined solely because of NATO expansion. But I do argue that it combined with a lot of other factors during this critical thought at the end of the Cold War to yield a very dark timeline towards the present, the one that we are currently on. One way to think of the book is as a reframing of the end of the Cold War. 
For a long time, we thought of the Cold War, as you said, as, a, as this moment of great success, and it was. But there's another way, a, a non-triumphalist way to look at the end of the Cold War, where you could say perhaps we should see the end of the Cold War as an event that gave rise to Vladimir Putin. And if we think about the end of the Cold War that way, then it starts to look very different, and we have to look for causes for why that happened. And the fight between America and Russia over NATO expansion is part of that story, and that's the story I'm telling in my book. You wrote in Foreign Affairs, new historical evidence shows that U.S. leaders were so focused on enlarging NATO in their preferred manner that they didn't sufficiently consider the perils of the path they were taking. So um, I just love to hear about new evidence. Uh, tell us a little bit about those internal battles within the U.S. government. Uh, who was uh, pushing hardest uh, for enlargement uh, and not paying attention to the likely Russian backlash? And who, uh, apart from George Kennan, saw the likely reaction? Sure. Just a word or two about the evidence before I dive into the, the weeds of the details. This book is based in large part on declassified evidence, much of which I got declassified, including records from nearly all summits between President Bill Clinton and Russian President Boris Yeltsin which I got declassified after uh, close to three years of appeals to the Clinton Library. And when I finally succeeded, I won the appeal that, appeals, plural, that got me these documents. The Kremlin complained. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, Putin's spokesman, complained about the release to me of these, of these documents because, as he put it, they talked about currently serving politicians, by which he, of course, means his boss, Vladimir Putin. Putin is all over these documents because he, of course, was working for Yeltsin as prime minister and in a host of other roles. So I figured I must be doing something right if the Kremlin was complaining about my document releases. And also that just emphasizes how what we're talking about is not dry, dusty history. These are sources of contention to this day between Washington and Moscow. Putin in particular repurposes the history of NATO expansion to justify what he's doing in Crimea and elsewhere. So these are issues that are of current importance now, not just of historical interest. So I believe that in order to understand what's going wrong now, we need to go back when it seemed that things were going right, which was the 1990s. And there in the 1990s, uh, it was clear that NATO was going to expand. As I said, I think that was not unreasonable. Uh, but NATO expansion was not just one thing. There was not just one way to expand NATO. There was a spectrum of possibilities. And I make the case actually for one of your uh, colleagues at Stanford, an approach that he very much believed in, Secretary of Defense Bill Perry. Secretary of Defense Bill Perry, along with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, John Shalikashvili, along with Joe Krusel and others, argued for a, a kind of intermediate institution that would modulate the pace of NATO expansion, not because they you know, wanted to keep Central and Eastern Europe waiting, but because they realized the enormity of the opportunity at the end of the Cold War to denuclearize, to work together with Moscow, to decrease the number of missiles aimed at the United States. And so they come up with this organization, the Partnership for Peace, which is going to be a slower method of expanding NATO. It's also a, a, an institution that will offer a birth to Ukraine. That was one of the surprises of my research, how hugely important Ukraine was from the very beginning. 
President Clinton repeatedly said early in the 90s, words to the effect of, you know, there's not going to be lasting peace in Europe until we decline a, a birth for Ukraine, we define a place for Ukraine. He would say, you know, we've just ended the Cold War. Why are we going to draw a new line across Europe between countries that have Article 5 and countries that don't? Why are we going to leave Ukraine, which is a huge democracy? on the wrong side of that line. And on top of everything else, Ukraine was born nuclear. It's the third biggest nuclear power in the world. So Clinton initially agrees with this institution, the Partnership for Peace, in part because Ukraine can be in it. And it's not clear that Ukraine can be in NATO. It's even not clear today that Ukraine can be in NATO. So that's one camp and initially they're successful, but then there are two other camps that gradually defeat the first camp. Those two other camps, they agree on policy, but disagree on why. So they agree that the partnership for peace is a terrible idea. Uh, they think that Central and Eastern Europe should have had Article 5 yesterday, and they very much want to move forward with all or nothing expansion. So in other words, instead of this diffuse method of gradual membership accrual, you're just gonna have all or nothing, Article 5 or nothing, in or out. And the reason they do that is for opposite reasons. There's a camp of idealists, who think that NATO expansion is actually going to create lasting peace and stability across Europe. And so the sooner you get to it, the sooner you'll get that peace and stability. So they're the idealists. But then there's the camp of people who argue, you know, these idealists, they're idiots, but they're useful idiots because they can say that in public and that's an appealing rationale for NATO expansion. We, the realists know that Russia will, it will never change. And we basically just need to expand NATO as soon as possible right now to establish neo-containment, or as I say in my foreign affairs article, containment beyond the cold war. We're not gonna say that in public, we'll let the idealists do the talking, but that's what we're going to do. And that group of people succeeds. And so the manner of NATO expansion switches. Now, I have to add, there's also Russian agency. So it's not just what's going on in Washington. Yeltsin is making some big mistakes, most notably shedding the blood of his political opponents in 1993 and then invading Chechnya in 1994. And that allows the Central and Eastern Europeans to say, see, we told you so, Russia's never gonna change. Those tanks that are in Chechnya, they're gonna be heading for us next. We needed Article 5 yesterday. And then of course, the Republican party in the US, there's a domestic politics angle, wins the midterm congressional election in 1994 on the basis of the contract with America that argues for expanding NATO 5 to Article 5 as quickly as possible. So all these factors come together in Clinton's mind and it allows the people who want all or nothing expansion to succeed. And then when that happens, then we really start to see deterioration in relations between Washington and Moscow. I'm curious to ask uh, how far you found in the documents you were looking at that the enlargement of the European Union was playing a, a parallel or yep. in some way related role, because that was going on at much the same time and in, in a, at a kind of similar pace, but with different calculations at work. Does it, does it show up in American calculations? It seems like from the Russian vantage point, uh, there comes a point when it's not clear which is worse, Ukraine in NATO or Ukraine in the EU, but neither is acceptable uh, to Putin. So tell us a bit about the role of EU enlargement, the other yeah. enlargement. Well, the interesting thing about EU enlargement in the 1990s is that it's not happening, or to be precise, it's not happening to Central and Eastern Europe, right? So the response of the European Union in the decade after the wall comes down is to put in countries like Austria. 
And that turned out to be one of the more interesting aspects of my research as well. So internally inside the EU, there were discussions with Austria where the Austrians said, you know, we don't want to be lumped together with that swamp of Eastern Europe. Let's, you know, make sure that, that we get into to the European Union. And you see this real hesitation inside the European Union to start taking on the obligation of Central and Eastern Europe which causes the German chancellor, Helmut Kohl, who wants it to expand, who doesn't want to be on the front line, really to tear his hair out sort of for years on end. And it was really surprising to me to see that, to also see internally that the EU by about 1995, again, this is all internal, decides that Russia will never join. Again, not for public consumption, but internally. And so this slowness of the EU to expand into Central and Eastern Europe actually feeds into the pressure on NATO to expand, right, as a compensation. Uh, John Lewis Gaddis famously said, you know, I, 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 at the time, this was a, a commentary in the 90s, he said, you know, if, if these, in America they're talking about trying to lock in democracy in Central and Eastern Europe by expanding NATO, that's like using a monkey wrench to fix a computer, the EU should be expanding and should be working on this. So I think there's an interesting story still to be written about what was happening in the EU in the 1990s. I should say, since this is one of the first big serious historical treatments of the 90s, the 90s are an unruly decade. The 90s are, are full of so many events and empire collapses, creating a whole host of new Eurasian states. Dissidents rise from prisons to the presidencies, gaining global admiration and Nobel prizes. The, the 90s opened the door to new forms of democratization uh, for the spread of market economies, for the spread of the tenets of liberal international order. But the 90s also opened the door to new forms of ethnic cleansing and authoritarianism. And in order to get from the beginning to the end of the 90s in any sensible fashion, you need a story to follow. It's essential to narrativize the 90s. And what I've done to narrativize the 90s is I've chosen to follow the story of the fight between Washington and Moscow over NATO expansion. But there's a lot of other through lines that you could use. And I think the, the story of the non-expansion to Central and Eastern Europe of the EU in the 90s could be a very useful through line. You could also use the spread of neoliberalism as a through line. You could use the fighting in the Balkans as a through line. There's a lot to be done in the 1990s, but it is clear to me that you need a narrative and you need a story because otherwise you just drown in places and locales. Well, I guess it, it's a sign of the aging process when the things that you lived through uh, start being written up as history, history and that corrects what you thought you knew about them. L let me uh, end with a kind of applied history question looking at the present. I sense that history, to use a rather overused term, is being weaponized by a President Putin uh, in, in new ways. Uh, only uh, just uh, a few months ago, he published uh, an extraordinary historical or apparently historical article about the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people. And uh, when I was last in Kiev, a number of people expressed concern that this was a prelude to some further military move uh, aimed perhaps at completely uh, taking over Ukraine, not just Crimea and the parts of eastern Ukraine where the Russians have established themselves. Uh, as you were writing this book, did you get a sense that you would one day be writing uh, a, an update or a postscript describing how the denouement ended with the complete uh, end of Ukrainian sovereignty? How do you feel about uh, Ukraine's situation now? 
Yes, Ukraine, as I said, plays a huge role in my story. And it's clear that because there was no place defined for Ukraine in the 90s, that we still have to deal with the consequences of that today. Indeed, that's one of the reasons why I regret that the Partnership for Peace, having been implemented, was then pushed aside because it did offer a birth for Ukraine. And now we don't have that and we are living with the consequences. And then there's another factor. Putin is very conscious of anniversaries and birthdays. For example, there is a, a persistent rumor that on October 7th, his birthday, he likes to have presents. So for example, the journalist Anna Polokovskaya was murdered on October 7th, Putin's birthday, right? There's a persistent rumor that he likes those kind of presents. He also likes to mark anniversaries. The 25th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union was 2016. And that of course coincides with the hacking of the US election in that year. And now we've got the 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union coming up. You actually see behind me an image of 1991. Uh, this actually is an image which shows uh, Boris Yeltsin during the abortive coup, which he helps to stop. But he then launches a counter coup of his own and dismantles the Soviet Union in December, 1991. And Putin has actually criticized this and, you know, we should not have started the sovereignty parade. That's his phrase for the Soviet republics declaring independence, declaring that they were sovereign and becoming independent. And so I am worried because this 30th anniversary is coming up that Putin is going to want to mark this 30th anniversary in some potentially very tragic way, as you say, that we as historians may look back on with regret in many years. Well, Mary, it's been a pleasure to have you uh, with us virtually. We hope we'll be able to see you in real space at some yes. time uh, in the not too far distant future. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk about the new book. I hope the paper shortages get overcome <laughs> and copies are soon in bookshops. Of course, it's available in electronic format uh, right now if you want it. Not One Inch, America, Russia and the Making of Post-Cold War Stalemate. The way you're talking, Mary, stalemate might be a good outcome. I rather <laughs> worry about checkmate. Uh, yeah. Mary Sorotti, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.